In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Tonight we will continue our Bible study, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 actually is the longest chapter in the Holy Scripture. It is divided into 22 sections, and every section has 8 verses. And the 22 are structured on the Hebrew alphabet. For example, if the first letter in Hebrew alphabet is A, then every verse from the eight verses starts with the letter A in section 1. Section 2, if it is B, then every verse from the eight verses in the second section starts with the letter B, and so on. We finished 12 sections, so 12 by 8 verses, then we finished 96 verses. Today we'll start from verse 97. Also, I want to bring to your attention that almost every single verse has a reference to the scripture, to the word of God. Every single verse. For example, verse 97, your law, 98, your commandment. 99, your testimonies, 100, your precepts, 101, your word, 102, your judgment, and so on. In every single verse, there is a reference to the word of God. We'll start tonight, we'll study section 13 and section 14. Section 13 is the letter Mem in Hebrew. And section 14 is a letter known in Hebrew. Mem or Mim is the 13th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it is used at the beginning of each verse from verse 97 to verse 104. These eight verses. So the first word in each verse begins with the letter Mim. This part, section 13 of the psalm, is a pure song of praise, which contains no single petition from the psalmist, no lamentation, no complaints. Section 12 of the Psalm 119 proclaimed a bold confidence in God and in the word of God. That's section 12. Section 13 is a simple honest declaration of love and devotion to God and to the word of God. So the main point is that the commandment of God provides great wisdom and benefit to those who will embrace them. Section 14 from verse 105 to verse 112, each verse begins with the letter Nun the 14th Hebrew letter. This part begins with one of the most well-known verses. Most of us know it by heart. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The psalmist gives us a beautiful view and thought here that we can all acknowledge and relate to. What is the beautiful thought and view here? that the word of God is truly the light that directs our steps. God's word enlightens our path as we walk through the darkness of this world one step at a time, day to day. God not only reveals his will to us, but he directs us in that will. God doesn't only tell us, this is my will, go and do it. But he holds our hand and takes us step by step to do his will. According to St. Cyril the Great, faith is the lamp and the word of the incarnate God is the light. He says, the word of God is the subject of our faith. Jesus Christ is the subject, we believe in him, and is the light. He is the light. So the lamp is the faith, and Jesus Christ is the true light 
which gives the light to every man who comes into the world. As we read in John chapter 1 verse 9. And Jesus Christ is the word of God, the logos of God. Section 13 speaks about the sweetness of God's word. Section 14 speaks about absolute confidence in God's word. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So the psalmist begins with a broad but purposeful statement. Oh, how I love your law. The psalmist actually declared his love for the word of God twice before in verse 47 and verse 48. But here his expression is more passionate. Oh, how I love your law. His devotion to God and his word has built a love relationship between the psalmist and God's word. But what does it mean, I love your word? It means I'm committed, I'm devoted to the word of God. The superficial Christian may read and understand and even in outward sense obey the word of God. But the spiritual man loves the word of God. He lives as if he could not live without the word of God. When Israel was commanded to love God in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, with their whole being, they were commanded to be devoted to God and to be set apart for God. David loved the word of God and it was his meditation all day. It is my meditation all day. He is consumed by the word of God as he reads it, studies it, and seeks to obey the word of God all the day. This is so much more than a temporary emotional passion. Just you read a chapter and temporarily you feel that you loved this word and that's it. No, it's my meditation all day. This level of dedication and commitment can only be described by the word love. It was his meditation not only in the night or when he was silent and solitary or when he has nothing else to do, but it is his meditation all day. He was full of the word of God. Good thoughts were interwoven and knitted with his common thoughts. So the word of God knitted and interwoven with his thoughts. As St. Augustine says, by such love, lust is driven away. Lust which repeatedly opposes our performing the commandments of the law. As St. Paul said, the flesh lusts against the spirit. Against which the spirit lusts or fights. Against the lust of the flesh, the spirit fights. Ought so to love the law of God. So we need actually to love the law of God if we want to drive the lust away. And how to love the law of God by its study during the whole day, by its our meditation on it the whole day. Then from verse 98, the psalmist makes three great comparisons in the next three verses. 98 comparison with his enemies, 99 comparison with his teachers, 100 comparison with the ancient, the elderly. In 98, first comparison with his enemies, he said, You, God, through your commandments, made me wiser than my enemies, for they are your commandments, they are ever with me. So the first comparison, the wisdom of his enemies to the wisdom that David was granted through the word of God. David is wiser than all these groups of his enemies because 
he has what they do not have, which is the word of God. The word my enemies are the same wicked individual who have forsaken the law of God as we read in verse 53 and have on several occasions sought to trap David, verse 61, and to destroy David, verse 95. The fact that they have forsaken the word of God makes them foolish. Wisdom, by the way, means skill. Wisdom assumes the knowledge to do something. So I have the knowledge to do something, but emphasizes the ability and the practice of applying that knowledge. So I have the knowledge and I apply it. And if the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and also the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, then the psalmist is at a huge advantage when it comes to his enemies who have rejected the word of God. He had wisdom by the word of God, but the word of God here is the means. As he said, you through your commandments made me wiser. So the word of God is the means to acknowledge wisdom, to have wisdom. The knowledge of God's law gives a wisdom and understanding significantly above the guile and deceit of worldly men. He boasts in nothing but what he has been given him, the the wisdom, the word of God. He boasts in this wisdom that was given to him to have and to hold forevermore. He said, for they are the commandment, your commandments, they are ever with me. They were his counselors with whom on all occasion he consulted and so become wiser than his enemies. The word of God were always near him in his heart and in his mouth. He was overthinking and speaking of the word of God. So he did not forget the instructions they gave him. They were ever before his eyes as the rule of his conduct. Then the second comparison with his teacher, verse 99, he said, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies or my meditation. So the first commandment, I became wiser than my enemies. Here, I have more understanding than my teachers. As for his teachers, he states that his understanding is greater than theirs. This is the second comparison. Not to suggest that his teachers are like his enemies, no. But simply, they are like his enemies, not standing upon the firm foundation of the scripture. Perhaps he is referring to those who had given him instruction in early years of life. But David, by constant meditation on the law of God, he had in the progress of years advanced to a point beyond that to which the teachers had reached. So clearly the psalmist point here is not the superiority of his own stricter interpretation of the law to the lenient interpretation of the teachers. No, that's not the point. But the point here is the superiority of the law of God to all other sources of instruction because the law of God is the fountain of wisdom, prudence, and discernment. He may also mean teachers of secular knowledge. Such teachers, the secular teachers, have often no spiritual knowledge or discernment. They are wise in their special subject of learning. But the psalmist, because he is preoccupied with God's testimony, he became wiser than these secular teachers. Once again, we see the word meditation. Meditation means he is consumed with all 
and contemplate upon all the commandments of God because your testimony are my meditation. St. Augustine wonders about this verse and he's referring to teacher uh, that Jesus Christ is the wiser than all his teachers. Even when he was at age of 12, he was sitting in the temple with the teachers. They were impressed by his wisdom. So St. Augustine says about this verse, Who is he who had more understanding than all his teachers? Who, I ask, is he who dares to prefer himself in understanding above all the prophets? Who not only by speaking taught with so excellent authority those who lived with them, but also their posterity by writing. What is here said could not have been spoken in Solomon's person. Even Solomon, the wisest person, cannot say, I became wiser than my teacher. I recognize plainly him, Jesus, who had more understanding than his teachers. Since when he was a boy of 12 years of age, Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem and found by his parents after three days' space, sitting in the temple among the doctors, hearing them and asking them questions. St. Augustine continues and says, It is very difficult to understand this of the person of the world. Jesus Christ, unless we can comprehend that it is the same thing for the Son to be taught as to be gotten of the Father. Why Jesus became wiser than his teachers? Because he is taught by his Father, by the Heavenly Father. He took upon himself the form of a servant, for when he had assumed the form of a servant, Men of more advanced age might think Jesus fit to be taught as a boy. So the elders of the Jews thought that Jesus is a boy growing and they want to teach him. But he whom the father taught had more understanding than all his teachers. Why? For your testimonies, Jesus uh, says, if this verse applies to the Lord Jesus Christ, are my study. For this reason, Jesus had more understanding than all his teachers, because he studied the testimonies of God, which, as concerning himself, he knew better than they, than the teachers. When he spoke this word to the teachers, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, yet I do not receive testimony from man my testimony from God. You may wonder how St. Augustine says Jesus became wiser through the study of the testimony because he is the son of God. But the word emptied himself and took the form of man made him actually not allowing his divinity to intervene with his growth as a human being. That's why you read in Luke chapter 2 he was growing in knowledge and wisdom before God and man. So he grew little by little as human being. But since he made the word of God, the testimonies of God, his testimony, that's why he excelled and he became wiser than his teacher. That's what St. Augustine is trying to say here. The third comparison is the elders, or here he called them ancients. Verse 100, I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. Next come to the elders in his comparison. The ancients, this is a reference to the older generation. Normally, we highly value those who have lived through the same trials and struggles that we face every day. And we say their experience made them wiser than us. But experience apart from the word of God 
is of limited value. Advanced age does not necessarily give wisdom. The psalmist claims a greater understanding than those who have more experience. Why? Only because he actually obeys the word of God. Because I keep your precepts. I obey your commandments. If experience does not lead one to obedience to the word of God, then that experience has no value. God's word is superior to any human knowledge or wisdom in every area. So the psalmist is not better, not more intelligent person than his enemies or teachers or ancients. No. He is saying it is because the psalmist possesses the word of God are ever with me, with with him. He is preoccupied. Your testimony are my meditation. And practice the word of God. I keep your precept. This enabled him to act with his skill. The skill of wisdom to put it in action. To think with discernment. And to behave with intelligence. Because he possesses the word of God. Verse 98. He reflect on the word of God. Verse 99, he obeyed the word of God. Verse 100. And these three steps, to know the word of God, to meditate on the word of God, to keep or to apply, to obey the word of God, then you will be more wise than your teachers, your enemies, and the elders. In verses 98 to 100, these three comparisons, the clarity, consistency, and completeness of the word of God was presented. And the psalmist was sure in these three verses to include his own responsibility. To possess means to know, to preoccupy by meditation, to practice by obedience. But here in verse 101, the responsibility is even more the focus. He says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. The first dedicated steps, look at what he has to do. Restraint. I restrained my feet from every evil way. So the psalmist here is proactive in taking the necessary precautions of making sure his feet do not go where they were not supposed to go. The psalmist understood that restraining himself from evil would also help him understand the word of God better. I have restrained my feet from every evil way. Why? That I may keep your word. He took heed not to walk in the path of the wicked, who have no law but their own desires, the law of sin and of the flesh. This separation from evil is not a negative thing, but comes with a positive result. I may keep your word. These barriers and boundaries restraining him that the psalmist placed upon his own life result in obeying the word of God. If we love our God and love his word, then we will not go where God forbids. We will not speak what God prohibits and we will not do what God rejects. To be a Christian means is to live a guarded life, to restrain yourself from evil. As he said, be holy for I am holy. We ought to be holy, but this holiness is measured in what we are united and attached to, not by what we separate from. You can separate yourself from many things, but if you are not attached to God, you are not holy. So the personal connection the psalmist had with God through his word encouraged 
a faithful walk, I restrained my feet from every evil way. Verse 102 I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How could David or anyone depart from the instruction that God himself has taught him? The psalmist had not departed from God's judgment. He had not chosen any other rule than the word of God, nor had he willfully deviated from the rule of the word of God. According to St. Augustine, what made the psalmist fear and restrain his feet from every evil way is that God himself have taught him. Verse 103 How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The wonderful pleasure and delight which the psalmist took in the word of God, it was sweet to his taste, sweeter than honey to his mouth. Time spent in God's word is a sweet experience to be thankful for. The psalmist could not describe the level of sweetness. That's why he cried, how sweet your word to my taste. He speaks as if he wanted words to express the satisfaction he took in the discoveries of the divine will and grace, he found no pleasure to be comparable to it. According to St. John Chrysostom, not every soul will find sweetness in the word of God. Only those who are upright and of sound soul, they can find sweetness in the word of God. Just as the sick cannot taste the sweetness of the food. They will tell you, I cannot taste the food if the person is ill. Verse 104 Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The true understanding and wisdom gained by the psalmist give him discernment and power to persevere and hate every false way. He proves that he derived great pleasure from the law of God because it always creates an easy conscience. Through your precepts, I get understanding. And I know the difference between the falsehood and the truth. Your precepts helped me to a good lead, to discern between truth and falsehood, between good and evil. He has become prudent and wise through the teachings of God's commandment. Therefore, I hate every false way. From the wisdom he acquired by constant meditation on the law of God, he not only abstained from sin, but he hated all sinful actions. As this section begins with a profession of love, oh, how I love your law, it ends with a resolution to hate. To love God means to hate all that is contrary to God, all falsehood. To love God's word means to be committed to knowing, understanding, and obeying. As he mentioned in verse 98, 99, and 100. But also it means hating all that contradicts or undermines or misrepresents the word of God. Such hatred is a wonderful protection of the purity of soul. When we hate sin, our soul will be pure and generates great confidence in God, which leads to unspeakable joy, to a peace and tranquility far and beyond all the treasures and pleasures of this world. Section 14, start with verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet 
and allow it to my path. Knowing the value of God's law as the guide of life, the psalmist is resolved to keep the word of God, whatever may the risk be. I will not compromise the word of God, even if I am in danger. So this section, section 14, are about putting confidence into action in few basic steps. I am confident in the word of God, then I will put this in action in some steps. Verse 105 and 106 explains the importance of understanding what the scripture is and fully commit to it. Verse 107 to 100 are about understanding the appropriate response to affliction, which to commit more to the word of God. During the time of affliction, we will be revived only by the word of God. And verse 111 and 112 are about understanding the purpose of the word of God. The word of God is to direct us in all doubts and difficulties and to comfort us in all fears and distresses. God's word is light to guide us safely as we walk through the darkness of this world, one step at a time, and in the midst of the dangers of our path. The word of God is compared to a small lamp that gives enough light to see where the psalmist is to place his next step. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He would not know where to step without the guidance of the word of God. The word of God prevents his stumbling over obstacles or failing down the cliffs or wandering off into paths which would lead into danger or would turn him away altogether from the right path. The need for light assumes that there is darkness. If I need light, then I am in darkness. He calls the word of God lamp to my feet because the word of God gives light not only to the eyes to have understanding and wisdom, but to the feet to know the next steps, to walk in the right path. And he calls the word of God a light. It's compared also to a light, greater and major light source that exposes the entire path upon which he steps, like the high beam in the car. The Holy Scripture is a light shining in dark place a lamp to be carried in the hand of a believer while he passes through this dark world. The same is said by King Solomon in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law is light. And the use of light assumes action, I'm walking. So there is an unspoken assumption that once the psalmist sees the next step, he will take it, using the word of God as light to progress in the path. Once he sees where the barrier is, he will avoid it. That's what the light held. To able to discern that he is standing in the ditch is utterly useless unless there are steps taken to return to the path. If I know that I'm in a ditch, but I did not make any steps to go to the path, what is the benefit here? Knowing that the word is a lamp and a light, in verse 106 he said, I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous commandment. Can see here the dedication, the commitment. I've sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgment. So the psalmist is not only aware 
of the fact that the word of God reveals where he is standing, where his next step should be placed, but also he is committed to it. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgment. So the first step in turning confidence in the word of God into action is understanding that only the word of God can pierce the darkness of the world and being committed to the word of God to use only the word of God to discern our course of action. So the psalmist here makes a binding oath and is committed to stand for the expressed purpose of obeying the word of God. And the psalmist showed determination of life to obey the word of God in this verse. It was a double decision. I have sworn and confirmed. It is not by just a mere purpose. It must be accomplished. It is not just I have the intention to obey the word of God. No. It must be accomplished. I have sworn and confirmed. According to St. Augustine, the oath here means a persistence on walking in the light and on keeping the commandment and the judgment of God. David says the righteous judgment of God. So the righteous judgment of God are kept by faith. When we don't assume that any good deed would ever go without a reward. That's the word righteous judgment. So any good deed will be rewarded. And also we should not assume that any sin would ever be unpunished. No, sin will be punished. That's the righteous judgment of God, according to the righteous judgment of God. Then in verse 7 he said, I am afflicted very much, but what my response would be? to depart from the word of God? No. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. So that is the response to affliction. So here we can see unwavering and determined observance of the law however he has exposed him to persecution. This unwavering and determined observer to the law made David actually exposed to persecution. People persecuted him because his determination to keep the the law of God. That's why he is praying to God to preserve his life. Revive me according to your promise. In your word, you promised to revive me and to preserve my life. Now I'm suffering affliction because I kept your law. Revive me according to your word. He did not mention the form of the affliction here. However, if the author of this psalm is David, and for sure it is David, it is known that there were numerous occasions in his life where David was afflicted. But if we want to apply this verse in a spiritual sense, it points to the corruption of heart, how we are afflicted by the corruption of our heart how we are afflicted by the temptation of Satan, and how our spirit fell under the weight of this affliction. But despite our many problems and pains, we look to God's word for a reviving of life. For this happened according to the word of God, the promises that God told us, call me during the time of your affliction, and I will deliver you. He knows the word of God and knows that God will not abandon him. So responding to affliction requires us to know well the word of God and fully trust the promises that he has made to preserve us. How the Lord Jesus Christ responded to the temptation by the word of God. Verse 108 Accept, I pray, the free will offering of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgment. What is the offering of our mouth? It is a sacrifice. 
that is a sacrifice of praise when we praise God. And he called it free will. By my own free will, I offer the praise of sacrifice. Now he is asking God to accept it. Accept, I pray, the free will offering of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgment. So the psalmist presented these words to the Lord as if they were a sacrifice brought to an altar. This term is found throughout Exodus, Leviticus, book of Numbers, when referring to the various sacrifices and offering that Israel was supposed to offer and the manner in which they were supposed to offer them so that they might be accepted to by God. They were free will offering meant to show his love and devotion to the word of God because I love your word and I swore and I confirmed that I will keep your, your law. I'm devoted. So I am offering this free will offering. These are not the free will offering of the hands but of the mouth. Spiritual sacrifices of prayer and praise. His desire that God find his offering acceptable. Accept I pray. He knows that he can only approach God with clean hands and clean heart. St. Augustine says, By the free will offerings of the mouth are well understood the sacrifice of praise, offered up in the confession of love, not from fear of necessity. His affliction does not give excuse for a superficial worship. No, he is offering a free will, offering sacrifice of praise. This prayer is offered also in humility with a desire to truly worship. Why I'm saying in humility? The second part of verse 108 said, O Lord, teach me your judgment. I'm still a student. Teach me your judgment. This repeated cries in the psalm for teaching show his humility as a man of God. A true disciple is always a disciple, a learner. Although he said he was wiser than his enemies and had more understanding than his teacher and more prudent than his ancient, but he needed to be instructed more and more and was desirous of being taught by God. Verse 109 My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not stayed from your precepts. So these two verses compare the reality of danger with steadfastfulness. When he said, my soul in my hand, means I am threatened to be killed. And the evil, my enemies, actually set traps for me. So this expression, my life or my soul is continually in my hand, is a common phrase that indicates one has knowingly placed themselves in a dangerous situation. So the psalmist is saying that his life was constantly in danger of death. But in spite of the danger to which he is exposed and the need to defend his life, he does not allow his mind to be turned from meditating on God's law. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. According to some translation, it is my soul and not my life. My soul is continuing in my hand. The Arabic, it says, Nafsi da'iman fi kafi, my soul. It's not my life. But in some copies, actually, my life or my soul is continually in your hand, not in my hand. And St. Augustine made comment about this, and he said, Some copies read in my hand, but most in your hand. But this letter is indeed easy. And if I have my life in the hand of God, of course, for the souls of the righteous are in God's hand, in whose hand 
are both we and our words. That's why St. Augustine prefer more my soul in my hand. It is perhaps, he said, my soul is in my hand in this sense as if he offered it to God to be revived. So as if he is saying, my soul is in my hand. Now I am offering my soul to you on the altar to revive it. Why? Because the wicked have laid a snare for me. The psalmist offers an explanation why his soul is in his hand in verse 100 when he said, The wicked have lined his path with traps and nets just waiting for him to fall into it. He is consciously aware of the reality of physical danger, yet he does not waver. I, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. He kept on in the way of his duty, did not turn his back from that, or departed from the God, or he did not depart from his worship to escape the snares of wicked men. The psalmist rejoiced in the word of God with a deep heart-filled joy. He considered it's a treasure inherited. He inherited this treasure, as we read in verse 111. Your testimony I have taken as a heritage forever. That's my inheritance. For they are the rejoicing of my heart. They are sweet like honey. Since I rejoiced in your word, therefore your testimony became my heritage forever. He regarded it as one does a rich inheritance. As a person regards a rich inheritance, he regarded the word of God as a rich inheritance. He chose it as his portion above all other things. The psalmist's joy finds its source in the objective nature of the word of God. And this joy turned it into motivation. In verse 112, the last verse in our Bible study tonight. Because he took it as inheritance and he is rejoicing in the word of God, so what did he decide? I have inclined my heart to perform your status forever to the very end. This joy turned it into motivation. It is because he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that he turns his heart to actively obey and perform the rules and the regulation of God to the end forever. He refers to an act of a choice on his part, I have inclined, meaning that he had preferred this course, that he had made this a sincere intention, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes. The theme of committing to God's word is once again emphasized, as he said, I have sworn and confirm it to obey the word of God. Now he is again repeating this. The psalmist would never forsake God's word, never stop reading, learning, meditating, and obeying the word of God. And this is not a temporary strategy, but it is a lifelong battle, forever, even to the end. With every dangerous step, how can he ever hope to endure forever and to the very end? How we endure all afflictions and the hardships that we face? We can, because the same God who enlightened and sustained our life from one step, the same God can actually do it in every step. He can sustain our life in every step in our life to the end. St. Augustine has a beautiful reflection here. He said, let me explain before I read it. 
He said your testimony is mainly about love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. But the love to my neighbor and to actually supply the needs of our neighbors cannot be forever. It has limited time. So how he says here forever and to the end. He said this love is forever. Not the attending to the needs of the others. That's what he says, St. Augustine. David, who says, I have inclined my heart, has previously said, incline my heart to your testimony. So that we may understand that inclining our heart, it is a fellowship between a divine gift and act of free will. Because he said, God inclined my heart. And here he's saying, I've inclined my heart. So it is a divine gift and act of free will. Then he said, but are we to fulfill the righteousness of God forever? Can we do the righteous acts of of love forever? He said, these works which we perform in regard to the need of our neighbors cannot be everlasting. I cannot say I will help my neighbor forever or everlasting in eternity any more than their need because their needs are not everlasting but if we do not do them from love there is no righteousness so maybe i i'm helping my neighbor out of showing off out of being embarrassed or being forced so there is no righteousness here but if i do them because of love then it is righteous If we do them from love, then that love is everlasting. And an everlasting reward is in store for this love. So the word to the end here, or to the very end, is about the love in performing the statutes of God. And there is an everlasting reward for it. This actually concludes our Bible study tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.